Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon. Welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. You know, I, I thought we'd take up an issue rarely, if ever, taken up in, in the mainstream media. That is the issue of political prisoners in the United States. Uh, people that are locked for sometimes life sentences, indefinite sentences, lengthy sentences in, in the prison industrial complex uh, for regularly left unmentioned or ignored, disappeared. Our guest today is a former political prisoner, Jan Lahman, released in May after doing 37 years in the federal penitentiary. Lahman was imprisoned for his role as a member of the United Freedom Front in carrying out various clandestine direct actions during the late 70s and 80s in opposition to U.S. imperialism and white supremacy. So, Jan Lahman, first of all, of course, let me welcome you to A Public Affair and WORT. Um, uh, hello, everyone, Alan, everyone, and uh, I'm glad to be here and glad to uh, have a little um, chat with you all this afternoon. <laughs> uh, Jan, give our listeners some sense of who you are, your background. Uh, talk for a moment or, or so about the environment in which you grew up. Well, um, uh, as you said, I just got out of prison after 37 years. So prior to all that, um, I was, um, I actually grew up in uh, Boston as a child in Boston. And then my family moved to Buffalo, New York, um, you know, blue collar uh, family and, uh, you know, neighborhood type of uh, just regular kid in the neighborhood. Um, I have an older sister, my sister, Irla, who, um, went to Cornell, later to Harvard and so forth. And um, she, she was a pretty big influence on me, especially in the, in the middle 60s, early middle 60s with the civil rights movement and with, uh, you know, the increasing, increasing, you know, imperialist aggression against Vietnam and Southeast Asia by the American government. So um, that definitely had an influence on me. I mean, on the street, on the corners, you know, we were just thinking about, you know, uh, playing handball and girls and things like that. But um, my sister definitely had an influence on me. And then um, a little later as a teenager, I, um, I, I wound up um, being locked up in New York State, uh, a juvenile uh, sentence um, for an assault case. And while I was in prison, that certainly, uh, you know, started to, like, uh, give me an idea of what life was really like for, you know, people that were, um, you know, victims of the system or were just caught up in, you know, criminal activity or something like that. I mean, that certainly started uh, opening a lot of doors for me in terms of understanding what's, what, what kind of system we really lived in. Um, when I got out of prison, I went to college. I went to Cornell and um, later I went to University of New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, I quickly joined SDS and became involved in the civil rights movement, supporting black power movement, of course, the anti-war movement, um, uh, activities like that. So that, that kind of is what got me there. But also keep in mind, uh, and uh, for you uh, older listeners, um, that in the, in, from the middle 60s on, um, as far as just the consciousness of, um, you know, anti-war understanding and understanding that the American government and American corporations were doing very dirty deeds all around the globe. I mean, that was pretty common. That was the mainstream thought of young people uh, in particular. And so in that sense, I was part of that, um, you know, generation of people with understanding. But in addition to that, I also, uh, you know, was a pretty much full-time activist. So in 1971, uh, you were charged with a parole violation for speaking at an anti-war rally 
and you were sent to Attica Prison in upstate New York um, in, the, in, in, the, in the months just leading up to the, the, the infamous Attica uprising of September of 71. Right. Talk about that. You met and became friends yeah. and comrades with Sam Melville. Who was Sam Melville for those not familiar and what happened to him? Yes, uh, uh, exactly as you stated it. Um, you know, I was uh, I was an anti-war activist, and I was speaking at an anti-war rally, and uh, they decided that was uh, illegal for me to do and violated my parole and sent me to Attica, which was you know very even then uh, today as well. It was a very one of New York State's very max security uh, prisons. While I was there, um, as you said, I met Sam Melville. Now, Sam Melville, I had heard about him a little bit just because he had just uh, prior year been um, arrested and charged with uh, all kinds of crazy, you know, anti-government activity kind of things, including um, the use of, um, of uh, bombings uh, always kind of at night. You know, I mean, they weren't designed to harm human beings or individuals that were pretty much acts of armed propaganda targeting things like uh, the draft center and the federal courthouse building, the FBI offices, those kind of things. So I met Sam, like I say, I mean, at that point I had always been, you know, for a little while, uh, anti-war activist and um, organizer and so forth, but meeting him and like, you know, talking to him and getting his, uh, understanding he was a few years older than me but you know same same group really um really gave me um pause to think more about the fundamental power and reality of this country and what it might take you know for the people to really change things not just to say we don't like this but how can we really change things and so that he he definitely had an impact on me in, in those things and as you mentioned you know the uh, the terrible, terrible attic, uh, uh, you know, massacre after the uprising, um, was, uh, happened a few months after I got out. Um, for sure, I wouldn't be here talking to all you people today if I had been there on, in September 9th to 11th when the uprising happened, uh, because, you know, dozens of people were killed. Some people were murdered. In Sam's case, um, what happened is during the course of the uprising, there was like negotiations going on and there were people coming in from the outside, including, you know, some state, uh, politicians, uh, some news media, um, some, you know, uh, legal people. Um, so when the government attacked the yard and the prisoners first with tear gas dropped from helicopters and then just with automatic rifle fire, um, pretty much indiscriminately into, into a crowd of like hundreds and hundreds of prisoners, um, after that was over, the outside observers were standing way down at one end of the hallway and they were bringing the, starting to bring the prisoners in from the yard, uh, you know, handcuffed and everything. And, and people said, Oh, whoa, look, there's Sam, there's Sam. He's, he's okay. He's not wounded. And, and sure enough, you know, a couple of cops were bringing Sam in all handcuffed and everything. And, you know, soon after that, the uh, outside observers were hustled out of the hallway. Um, I think it was two, perhaps three days later, the county coroner put forth a list of all the people that were killed that day. Sam's name was on that list. So, uh, you know, people can draw their own conclusions, but obviously he was captured alive, unwounded. Three days later, he was on a list of people that was, were dead from gunshots. No, I, I remember that fairly clearly as you speak, uh, because when we heard that news and, and those reports that he was seen alive after the retaking of, of the prison uh, and was basically, uh, well, executed is, was what we understood at that time. Now, clearly that had, right. had, had a deep, clearly that had a deep impact on you. Talk about what came, came after. Well, yes, it certainly had an impact on me, but, um, um, we have to also <clears throat> keep in mind that, you know, this was, you know, at that moment in time in this country, I mean, um, Black Panthers were being, their officers were being attacked. Uh, many of them were being shot and murdered, like Fred Hampton and Mark Locke out in Chicago, other places as well. Uh, people were being locked up. Anti-war activist leaders and spokespeople were being, uh, you know, uh, 
charges were being thrown at them. They were being uh, locked up and so forth. Uh, so, uh, I mean, if Sam, if the murder of Sam Melville was the only thing or one of the few things happening, you know, uh, that was one thing. But within the context of the repression coming down against, you know, the, uh, you know, peace, freedom, justice, anti-racism movement um, was was widespread and nationwide. So, you know, it was in that context, Sam's killing certainly had a, you know, deep and sorrowful impact on me, but uh, it was within the context of that overall reality. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you put that in, in a deeper, broader uh, context, because I know many, many, many young activists here in Madison, waves of them over, I've been here a long time, uh, who mm-hmm. have no recollection or, or slight understanding uh, knowledge of the context of the times that you're talking about. So uh, I think it's really important that you get into that. You go, <coughs> sorry, you were, in 1972, you were arrested and charged with bombing a Richard Nixon re-election headquarters building and police station in New Hampshire, and you were sentenced to 20 years. You were released in 78 after winning an appeal and having your sentence reduced. Um, then what? Uh, talk about what what happens in between. Well, um, as you said, uh, I, I was arrested in, uh, in, in uh, early 72 for bombing Nixon re-election headquarters. And, of course, back then, New Hampshire, that's in New Hampshire. New Hampshire was the beginning of the election process back then for uh, the USA, uh, you know, presidential elections and so forth. And just a quick note on there, um, a little bit of context. What had happened is, you know, across the country in, in those days, much, much similar and, and perhaps today even more to the um, Black Lives Matter protests going on in the last year and two uh, where, you know, small towns and, 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 and as well as big cities and, you know, more expected places where demonstrations and marches and rallies were being held, it was happening all across the country. By, by 1972, the, the anti-war movement in particular, but also hand-in-hand with the, you know, uh, anti-racism, civil rights, you know, and more uh, movement, were were very active. So up in up in Manchester, New Hampshire, not known as a hotbed of radicalism or anything, then or now, I think, but up even up there, um, when Nixon came there to open up his office and kick off his big presidential campaign, about five thousand people, you know, citizens of the area, not you know, young people certainly, but you know, across the board public were out there protesting Richard Nixon, his war and, uh, you know, his plans for, you know, running for president again. Uh, what happened was, and, and, I, and believe me, I mean, sometimes people exaggerate or whatever, but there was an unprovoked, just assault on the crowd to push them back so Nixon wouldn't have to look at people as his car drove by, uh, just attack against the, the you know, the, the protesters. And, and we're talking about this, a daytime protest, as, you know, people had their little children with them and, you know, all the rest of it. And this included uh, the cops coming, wading in and beating up, like hitting people with their clubs and so forth, including a young woman, uh, I forget, she was maybe 17 years old or something like that, uh, who was pregnant and got hit in the stomach and literally on the streets of Manchester, you know, um, had a miscarriage there, you know, and uh, ambulances came and all that kind of stuff. So that was the context in which, anyway, a couple of nights later, Nixon's headquarters was bombed and the uh, police headquarters was bombed. Again, of course, this was just property damage. Unfortunately, I was uh, captured and, um, you know, sentenced to that 20-year sentence, um, sent to prison. Uh, what happened is, I, through some winning an appeal, I got the sentence cut back to 10 years, and then, you know, I finished that whole thing in about seven years and got out. So in, in Go 1978... I got out of prison and I moved up to Boston and, um, you know, have had some contacts and established there. And, uh, what we, what I got involved in was, um, at that point, you know, it wasn't very serious or big yet. I mean, it was serious, but not very big yet, 
like, you know, people in this country were just becoming like really concerned, aware, and really opposed to the apartheid, racist apartheid system going on at that point in South Africa. Uh, people may know from history, uh, a year or two before that, there were big uprisings of uh, young people in Soweto, and uh, there was a whole movement going on in, in support around the world, but not very much in the United States at that time. So I came out, I got involved in that, and hand-in-hand hand with, like, community organizing and, um, you know, anti-racist organizing and, and so forth in the, in, the, in the Boston area. And one of the things we did was, uh, along with uh, my, one of my comrades, Kazi Tori, and this thing called the Haymarket Foundation, what we did is we organized this uh, large, all-day-long uh, music festival in Harvard Stadium, um, that featured Bob Molly and Whalers and Patty LaBelle and, 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 you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, entertainers. And it was like, uh, it was called the Amandla Festival of Unity. And it was, um, you know, the, all the funds we raised, they were doing it as, uh, you know, uh, a fundraiser. And the funds we raised, we, we wound up sending to South Africa to the ANC and, you know, work to get Mandela out of prison and so forth. So that was kind of the context of, uh, you know, the activities I was doing when, when I got out of prison in 1978. So, and of course, that kind of community organizing, up front, out front, public community organizing, uh, put you in, in, in the sights of the authorities once again. Uh, to, you know, cut to the chase, you go underground again uh, as and join uh, what's commonly often referred to, at least in the literature, as the armed clandestine movement. Um, talk about that. You 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 eventually become yeah, a. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, basically, it, I mean, as a community organizer, I mean, you know, I had a family, and you know, just having a baby was being born, and all that. I mean, my my thought was not to, um, you know. Uh, do anything but keep on doing what I was doing. But we were starting to face a lot of repression, including like, um, you know, constant tail and phones bugged and apartments being rifled while we went there and things like that. So it got to the point where um, I felt it was unsafe to, you know, continue doing as I was doing. And uh, myself, uh, my, my comrade sister, uh, wife, and, uh, you know, brand new little baby and, and our children, we went underground, um, understanding that it would be a complicated and a serious situation, but also that the um, possibility of harm and danger to them continuing as living as we were was, uh, you know, very serious, very great. Now, at that point, uh, also for listeners that... Um, may not be too familiar with with some of the you know happenings in decades past um you know from the from the late middle 70s and especially there was a couple of years like in the late 70s um at that time there was ongoing in this country probably anywhere from one to three bombings a day anti-government anti-corporate bombings not you know world trade towers things with huge numbers of casualties or anything like that. Most of these never had any casualties at all. But this was kind of like the reality. There was a public movement. There was an anti-apartheid movement that, you know, started to develop. There was an ongoing, you know, anti-imperialist movement. There was the struggle, you know, of um, people of color, black people, you know, uh, Latinos, Puerto Rican people. I mean, and coupled with the public organizations, there was also um, clandestine organizations uh, you know, from the Black Liberation Army, uh, the, uh, 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 you know, Red Guerrilla Resistance, the United Freedom Front, various other groups, uh, New World Liberation Front out on the West Coast and so forth, uh, that were active, you know, hand in hand, most often with public activity, but utilizing those methods of uh, those tactics, that strategy of, of also literally attacking, you know, government and corporate physical property um, in, in, in conjunction with, you know, the, act, the work that people were doing publicly on the streets. This was the reality going on at that time. So just to put it in some context. Good. You're listening to Jan Lahman, former political prisoner, uh, long, lifelong now activist, 
who was released in May after doing 37 years in the federal penitentiary. Uh, we're talking about, well, the context for the times, uh, political work, clandestine work, uh, being a prisoner in America, uh, being a political prisoner in America, a country that denies the existence of political prisoners. We'll be opening up the phone lines at, oh, in a few minutes at 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you want to join with a question, a comment, an observation for Jan Lahman, give us a call. Again, 608-256-2001, extension number 9. Jan, so let's, let's go to the United Freedom Front. What was its what was it? What was its political out, outlook? Uh, you've already given some context, but what was the specific context of how and why it came about? Uh, more so, who were its members? Uh, there's a number of them now gone, uh, but you know, again, hidden from history, if you will. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, the United Freedom Front was one of the, um, you know. At one point, the FBI went to Congress, said they were one of the greater threats to the security of the USA government and so forth, but they often go up with crazy stories. But anyway, it was, it, the work of the United Freedom Front was, um, one central theme was uh, struggle against apartheid, support for the South African people in the, in the, in the necessary war to get rid of apartheid, to get Nelson Mandela and other political prisoners out of prison in South Africa. Um, but that was also coupled with uh, other activities, like we were uh, uh, charged with uh, supporting the, the struggle going on in Ireland, uh, the IRA and so on. We were charged with uh, uh, supporting the struggle of the Palestinian people. Uh, likewise, in, in the early middle 80s and so forth, there was uh, a lot of U.S. government intrusion and even um, kind of invasion in uh, Central America, in El Salvador, in Nicaragua. So we were charged with various activities in support of those people in their freedom struggles. But we were also charged with um, doing something that we're very familiar with, I'm very sorry to say today, and that's like the police murders of people, and in particular, black people. Uh, it was it, 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 just like we know how it's gone on just recently in the last couple of years, and the names are so familiar to all of us. Uh, and But it was going on then, too, and uh, one of the points just that sticks in my mind is in the, in the early middle 80s, there was a, an older lady, a black woman in a grandmother that was shot and murdered right in front of her apartment door by New York City police. So, so similar to the murder of Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Here we are like 40 years later or something. And so that was definitely work we were doing involved in. And later we were charged with various activities, you know, in that work. So, um, you know, it, it was both uh, support internationally for freedom struggles and st support and work for the uh, freedom struggle here in the United States. Talk, take a minute and talk about some of the members. So, as I mentioned already, so, uh, a number of them now gone, uh, who, who carried it. Your comrades, uh, fallen comrades, uh, and some, of course, yes. still with us. Yes, I was the last of the, we, we were known as the Ohio 7 or the United Freedom Front Defenders. I was the last of them to uh, finally be released, like as you said, this past May. Um, two of my, my, my dear friends, my dear friend Richard Williams, he, uh, he died in prison in 2005. And then in 2019, my good comrade Thomas Manning, he died in prison in 2019. And, you know, it was one medical thing or another, but... In large part, it was medical neglect, uh, if not even just medical abuse. And, and that wasn't just, you know, directed towards these two people, political prisoners, but that's pretty much um, standard, you know, medical so-called care across the board, not just in the federal prison system, which is called the BOP, but across state systems, you know, all across the United States. 
Um, you know, the medical care is one of the most serious and dangerous problems that exist behind those prison walls. Again, you're listening to Jan Lahman, former political prisoner. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. If you want to get in with a question, a comment, don't wait until too late in the hour. Uh, again, 608-256-2001, extension 9. Rochelle, our producer engineer, tells me that we have a caller with a comment question for uh, Jan here. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Jan, for your life experience of suffering and uh, perseverance and activism. And I'm calling to give the listeners the, my life example uh, displaying the variety of, of political imprisonment. Fifty years ago, I lived upstate in a rural county uh, when in the uh, mid-1970s, I, as a matter of fact, happened to be the person who introduced marijuana sales um, to the, our bucolic community. I, I was 20 years old. But the point is it did not ingratiate me to the local gendarmes, uh, but they could never catch me at it. <clears throat> By the Reagan-Bush one year, I had moved on to become a vocal left-wing survivalist and a popular weekly contributor to the editorial page in our local rag. By the week of 9-11-2001, local authorities working with the FBI and BATF framed a weapons charge on me, and mm. in short order, I was convicted and I was indicted, federally indicted, uh, on uh, the 14th of September, and I was facing 30 years in prison, which, no thanks to my lawyer, I, I jailhoused a uh, lawyer down to three years. And uh, I managed to get through and uh, have moved on to a peaceful, relatively politically inactive life since then. And uh, that's all I wanted to share. Thank you, uh, Alan. Bye. Thanks, Steve. Uh, a comment, uh, Jan Lahman. Yeah, um, I'm certainly, um, you know, sorry to hear of the time you had to do, but, um, I mean, the, the the kind of picture there of, like, the government coming after people because of their politics or because of their, their writings in, in papers or because of their speeches that they might be making, or even just because of the work that they do and uh, um, is is not at all uncommon. I mean, we know this. And one of the things, and, and, and let me say a couple of words on this. One of the things is that, you know, the the United States government always totally untruthfully uh, claims that it holds no political prisoners. And that's just ridiculous because um, there are, at, at any given point, there are at least dozens, if, and, and at some point it was even more than that, like well over 100 people that were in prison for, over open, obvious political uh, uh, activities. Now, whether it was a frame up, you know, totally framed up person, or whether it was, you know, people were involved in activities that the government has criminalized, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, a totally fabricated case. I mean, all of those are, are, are true. But I mean, there's been, there has been, and there continues to be political prisoners held across the country in all the different prison systems. Now, some of these names, you know, have fortunately become somewhat known, people like Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, people like Jamil Al-Amin, perhaps. Uh, but but there, are, there are still, you know, uh, uh, dozens of people in captivity right now. Let me just say something about that captivity, too, you know, because, I mean, uh, first of all, i got to say it <laughs> right up front. Prison sucks. There's no question about that. But the reality is that, you know, once political, politically aware and active people find themselves behind the prison wall, um, basically what it, what it means is like, you know, that's your front of the struggle. That's your area where you now find yourself. And if you were an activist and, a, you know, a organizer and a freedom fighter, you know, prior to being locked up, I mean, that's what you keep on doing, you know, behind the wall, which of course is much more, 
um, it's harder to do and there's it's uh, less uh, ability to do many, many things, of course. But the idea of, 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 of continuing to do the work is, is something that all political prisoners, uh, you know, did um, then when I first got locked up and continue to do today. I mean, and we're talking about you know, political education classes, study groups. We're certainly talking about writing, you know, books, articles, and also writing to stay in contact with people outside as well as uh, legal work, of course, is, is important. Um, also is important is, uh, just in life in general, but in prison even more so, is staying fit, staying physically active and capable because uh, it will certainly happen sooner or later. There will be attacks made against you by staff. Sometimes they try to get other prisoners to do something to you. Most of the time that doesn't work. But the staff have been known. I myself have been assaulted while I was in prison by prison guards and and various other government officials. So staying capable and fit and, uh, uh, you know, uh, mentally and physically is, is like the day-to-day activity of political prisoners. And how old you are doesn't really matter that much. You still keep on doing it. Um, uh, I mean, it includes many things, of course. Like I was, I'm, I'm a yoga practitioner. I, I was, for years, I was teaching classes, um, you know, in prison as well. But But you have to do things to keep yourself mentally, physically, and, and, and uh, politically um, engaged. Now, one of the important things for that, and uh, I'm speaking this to people right now here today, is the need to stay in contact with the public outside. Now, most of the time when a person gets, or a group of people get uh, caught up in a big case and there's a defense committee and there's some legal workers, uh, I don't know, I'm, uh, you know, uh, some decades ago, we had had some, you know, really well-known people like Bill Kunstler and Lynn Stewart. They were they were attorneys that helped us in our cases, and and other attorneys like that, Elizabeth Fink and Bob Boyle and people like that, that um, you know were known to you know take on cases, hard cases, and you know not worry about the money and so forth. But it's important, you know, for us to uh, out out here. I'm talking about for people out here to know that like political prisoners still need that legal support and help and legal workers, uh, you know, need to know that, that this is an area that's so important and that uh, their skills and their education, you know, has, can do a lot for, but in general, just staying in touch with the outside is very important because especially as years go on your own, whatever committee you had, like people and so forth, but, you know, to stay in touch with what's going on, you know, you know, day to year to year, decade to decade while you're in prison and being part of that. Now, that's something that's real important, and it's important on both sides. It's important, of course, for the political prisoner to reach out, but it's also important for, political, for, for um, you know, public activists and organizations to reach in and uh, because that's also one of the safety measures that, that, you know, political prisoners have is the fact that uh, the prison system knows there are people outside that are kind of keeping an eye on things and, and an eye on people. So that's very important for people to do. I mean, I'm not advocating any particular group or anything, but uh, groups like the ABC, the Anarchist Black Cross, uh, they do a lot of prisoner support work. Uh, uh, probably the, the the primary political prisoner group in this country is called the Jericho Movement. Uh, they, they keep a list of all political prisoners and, uh, you know, you know, uh, do the kind of work that's so important necessary to be done. And, and there's other organizations too that, that, you know, um, uh, actively, uh, support political prisoners and do stay in contact with them, you know, sending books or, you know, just, you know, letters and contact is very important. We've got a couple of callers and they have uh, a couple of things I want to get to before the hour is out. So let's, let's get our callers in. Uh, we have two waiting. Ron, hi, you're on the air. Thanks. Do either of you count nuclear peace activists, Sam Day, Helen Woodson, Gail Byer, Bonnie Urfer from Madison, and hundreds more from Baltimore to Honolulu, who've done months up to 18 years in jails and federal prisons? Do you count them among U.S. political prisoners? Thanks. Well, I'll, I'll speak to that. Yes, I, sure. I certainly do. I mean, uh, political prisoners uh, is not like limited some group or some type of resistance or activity. 
I certainly, uh, you know, respect, admire, and, uh, um, you know, have some, have had over the years in some contact with uh, the whole, uh, you know, anti-nuclear movement and the, uh, you know, the peace movement, uh, trying to get rid of these horrible, horrible atomic weapons, nuclear weapons, you know, that are stuck all around this country and aimed all around the world. Let's go. Let's continue on with the phones. I mean, uh, I think that was a really important question because on numerous levels, people are locked up for well for their activism and opposition to empire and etc. Uh, I have Nick on the line. Nick, hey, how are you? Hey, Alan. Uh, yeah, it's so good to hear you out and about, man. Um, uh, uh, let me. Uh, my question. You've been in for a really long time, and, and uh, way back when, me personally, I was thinking the left was kind of petering out, and it's nothing that someone from the 30s would ever recognize or call a left. I'm wondering if you think there's an actual left in this country today, and if so, where do you, where is it rooted? Well, I, I think there's a I think there's a left in this country. Um, I think I think there's. It seems to me there's two things going on at this at the same time at this very moment. On the one hand, there's there is and has been uh, a popular um, concern and even uprising. I don't mean with weapons in hand, but like just people out marching, protesting, you know, organizing, talking, you know. Uh, screaming about, you know, I mean, Black Lives Matter is the kind of the center of it, but, you know, the, the government repression, the police murders, the, the continued, you know, you know, racism on all these levels and that, that impact life across the board. And of course, you know, poor people, working people, most, most of all, I, on one hand, we have this and, and it seems to me larger than we've seen in a long, long time. And that's beautiful and necessary and wonderful. On the other hand, I think, you know, uh, not that I'm uh, just recently out of prison and all that. I'm I'm kind of restricted, you know, I'm on this parole thing. I can't, like, travel around or anything much as I like to go see people here and there. But I, it seems to me that um, some of the more um, foundational left organizations and parties are probably not as, um, you know, active or as um, impactful as as they may have been before. But on the other hand, you know, if you look around and, and believe me, I, I, I'm, you know, I certainly think that the public, the people should, you know, be the ones controlling society and the country and the economy. And, uh, you know, socialism is, 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 is what, you know, working people and, and most of us, all of us really, you know, need and, 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 um, and ultimately will want, I think. But so, but at the same time, I mean, I'm not necessarily, um, I don't, I still don't believe that the electoral system is the way it will come to be. Although I'm not opposed to, you know, uh, progressive and positive, uh, you know, legislators and the campaigns and so forth. But what I'm getting at is that, you know, between old Bernie and uh, uh, AOC and, and people like that actually in Congress, that also show you that the idea of you know socialism and uh, moving just beyond just basic hardcore u.s imperialism is something that uh, has some resonance among you know just people in this country so i think that's a positive sign although not the solution so jan laman in um by the late 80s the United Freedom Front, uh, most, most if not all of the members are apprehended and it leads to what you mentioned before, uh, the Ohio Seven trials. Um, you guys were, you know, you men and women were accused yeah. initially of, from what I understand, of criminal sedition and, um, that is conspiring to topple the government by force. Um, but that came heads up against um, the fact that the People had then and now, as we've mentioned already, deny the existence of political prisoners. You know, how can you have uh, <laughs> such charges if, if they're, and, and what happened? That case, that case didn't go forward and, and everybody was uh, basically imprisoned on different, uh, different charges. But that uh, criminal, well, criminal sedition rap was uh, quite something. 
Well, uh, the uh, specific charge, actually, it's called seditious conspiracy. And it's a law that, like, I think it stems way back from around the late 1800s or early 1900s or something. And, and you're absolutely right. Basically, we were charged with, um, I'll get back to that in a minute about different cases and so on, but we were charged with uh, what, what, what's defined as seditious conspiracy is conspiring to overthrow and or impede the activities and actions of the United States government. Uh, I mean, certainly if you're talking about politics or political situation, I mean, it seems to me that, like, I mean, that speaks for itself. Uh, now, we were charged, and we did go to trial for seditious conspiracy. But we also went to trial, and this is one of the things that the government does, um, you know, a lot, actually. They will, like, hit you with uh, many cases in different jurisdictions, and 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 uh, so with the idea being that, like, if they lose some, uh, you know, something else will stick, and they'll be, still be able to give you, like, you know, way, way too much time that a person can do in life kind of sentences and so on. Um, and, uh, and also at the same time, you know, they, they make a big, uh, they try to get a lot of uh, splash or a lot of publicity out of these cases. Look, we apprehended these people. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that, of course. One is, you know, to, you know, arrest the people, get them out of circulation, stop them from doing whatever it was that they claimed that we were doing. Two, it's to, use those people, us for example, as, a, as an example, particularly to activists and organizations saying that, okay, you want to mess with the USA government and imperialism, this, this could happen to you. What we're doing to them, we're going to come and get you, you know, next or soon or something like that. And then the third point, of course, is that, you know, once they do convict you and lock you up, they try to bury you and kind of make, make believe that like, like, you didn't exist. I kind of disappear you from the scene. That's another reason why it's so important for political prisoners and outside groups and activists to stay in touch with each other. But yes, we were charged with sedition, seditious conspiracy. We were also charged with, uh, uh, that we were charged with that up in Massachusetts in, in Brooklyn. We were charged with, uh, conspiring to, um, uh, stop the, I mean, literally it was conspiring to stop the United States government by use of bombs and so forth from activities and those activities were activities of, you know, supporting apartheid and, uh, you know, keeping Nelson Mandela in prison and, you know, illegally invading Nicaragua with the uh, troops and so forth, things going on in the eighties back then. I mean, we were literally charged with that, even though it wasn't called sedition in that case. And that's the other thing. They can't like try you for one thing here and lose the case and then take you someplace else and try you for the same thing. So sometimes they'll charge you one way and then they'll charge you another way. But yeah, seditious conspiracy was the charge. We luckily wound up um, through some legal maneuvers and also ultimately it went to trial all the way till the end of trial. And the jury up in Massachusetts, up in Springfield, Massachusetts, after almost one full year of trial, literally going to court four or five days a week, most, most weeks, uh, found us either not guilty or a hung jury, like, you know, saying they weren't sure one way or the other. So, Jan, uh, we have one more caller that I want to get in before the end of the hour, before we run out of time. So, Al, you're on the line. Yeah, well, thank you, Alan. Um, I would just want to emphasize, first of all, my hat's off to your speaker. He's uh, definitely a hero for the cause, uh, for uh, anti-imperialism, and, and I recognize um, the struggles that he's been dealing with. Um, I wanted to get on and say something about he mentioned, and that is um, support for the political prisoners and how important it is. I myself went to prison for um, mutiny on the high seas during the Vietnam War. We seized, uh, myself mm -hmm. and another man, we seized a, a vessel full of napalm and uh, took it out of the war effort for a considerable part of time. Um, and, uh, of course, went to prison for that and uh, sentenced to 10 years and I maxed out my sentence. Um, mm -hmm. and during that time, I also spent almost a year in solitary. Uh, I will say this. Um, the most important thing for political prisoners, and, and there are very many political prisoners in prison, is that uh, they need to be having, getting support from the outside. If you have the opportunity, if any of the listeners have an opportunity, 
to correspond or write to a political prisoner. They should do so because um, it, that support keeps the eyes. Uh, the police see those, uh, the, 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 the guards, they see the letters coming in, and oftentimes they're opened up and read. And in my case, they were sometimes uh, destroyed and deleted. Uh, but uh, right. but the point is, is that they now know that there are people that want to stay in touch with you. And that's critically important for the political prisoners because it can get, they can be so isolated out. In my particular case, I was very fortunate. Um, there were people there in the prison for anti-war activities, for draft evasion or uh, uh, we even had military people that had been arrested in Vietnam and uh, prosecuted in the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. There are indeed political prisoners. We had people uh, with AIM. We had people uh, with the BLA. We had people with uh, Weather Underground in the penitentiary. So uh, my hat's off to you, and uh, I'm, I'm very pleased that you're out on now, and uh, I wish that you and I had corresponded and had an opportunity to meet. And that's all I have to say. Thank you so much for taking my call. Thank you ever so much, Al. Yeah, and a response, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, very, uh, very, um, very, very good words. Thank you for them. A salute back to you for your struggle and, uh, um, you know, the suffering that you went through yourself. But one thing I just do want to emphasize here, as time gets short, the, you know, being aware of staying in contact with prisoners, doing work with them is, is, is so important. Let me just quickly say this. When I went, when I finally, after five years of trials that we were talking about before, when I finally wound up going to the first prison they sent me to was uh, Leavenworth Penitentiary out in Kansas. I was greeted at the door by two good, good brothers, Leonard Peltier, the native American AIM leader and Sundiata Coley. A, a Black Panther and Black Liberation Army uh, uh, soldier. Um, those two men, just to point that out, remain in captivity today. They're in their 80s now. They remain in captivity today, as well as do you know a number of other people that have been there for for you know decades and decades. Additionally, though, there's there's cases going on right now. In fact, a case that I'm trying to be concerned with a lot is is, is a younger guy, Eric King. He now he's an anti-fascist, anti-racist. He's been in in segregation a thousand days. The 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 caller before was just saying how important it is, you know, to stay in touch with people. They got him in a, under a, a kind of a, a a regulation, one that I don't even know that exists, but he cannot write or receive letters from anybody. He cannot call anybody and he cannot have a visit from anybody except very restricted visits from an attorney, his mother and his wife. So that whole idea of like staying in contact and, you know, you know, writing and so forth. I mean, they're, they're trying a whole new trick where they're going to try to like literally isolate you into non-existence. Uh, people are trying to organize a little campaign about that right now for Eric King. But, um, I mean, these are the things that are going on. I mean, I could speak a lot more, and I know we don't have much time. But these are very, very important things for, for folks to know about. As we get down toward, toward the wire here, Jan Marmon, I want, you, I want to I wonder if we can broach something else. And that is, there's a distinction made today uh, within, the, within the movement for black lives, a distinction between being an ally, a white ally, and being a co-conspirator. I don't know if you've encountered that, uh, that distinction, but I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that. Being an ally versus being a co-conspirator. You, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tell you that I, I, I don't, um, I'm not familiar with the, with, the, with, the, with the difference between the two. Maybe you can explain more. But certainly I would say that, you know, Anybody of any progressive thought, anybody that's concerned about whether it's like the environment that's, you know, going all the way, you know, to the earth is dying, you know, uh, whether it's a labor issue, you know, uh, you know, people haven't, uh, unions are down and membership and so forth. It's hard to organize and so forth. But on any level, if, if, if you are concerned with, you know, people's right to be, 
you know, have a life and, and, and self-determination, certainly, you know, that would make you an ally of Black Lives Matter and of the struggle of, 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 of people of color, you know, black people and Native American, you know, Latinx people and so forth, uh, you know, that struggle. But, I mean, I think you can certainly take it a step further than just being an ally. I mean, you can be an active supporter also. I mean, I'm not sure exactly where that uh, co-conspirator, you know, how that fits in with the term. But um, I know that just myself in the last, you know, time since I've been out here, you know, working with uh, there's, there's various organizations, black organizations that, you know, work closely with, you know, other uh, people, white people included, that, that support them and work with that cause with them. So um, that's, um, you know, that's, I think, kind of fundamental to any, any kind of activism in this country. And as we close out, I want to come back to something that's been touched upon all, all through this conversation, uh, and that is the importance of centering anti-racism and a revolutionary capitalist vision, anti-capitalist vision, in the in the political work, talk about that a little bit. That is, you you they've always intertwined with you with, with lots of lots of folks. It appears uh, that it gets compartmentalized, it gets siloed, it gets separated. Uh, but the two are really inseparable. You need to center anti-racism and revolutionary anti-capitalist vision. I I totally I totally think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, you know what. I, trying to make this quick let's 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 face the reality of it you know and and even a bad education you know we have some knowledge of i mean this this whole country this this united states of america entity uh was founded on you know the theft of of land the genocide committed against the people that land was taken from the native people who were here soon after was much of it was like built and developed on the on the enslaved labor of African people brought over here in chains, and uh, you know the various other waves of uh, different people that have come over here, whether Chinese people or you know other uh, you know immigrant groups and so forth, and particularly people of color. I mean, this is this was the foundation, and it's all based on that false ideology so-called white supremacy, which, which, I mean, it doesn't even make sense if you think about it, you know, <laughs> but, but I mean, this is the foundation of this country. So therefore, it's certainly my feeling and belief, heartfelt to the bone, is that, you know, that has to be at the core of our understanding, our analysis of, uh, you know, what it is that we're actually confronting, because in order to really be able to, you know, seriously, you know, uh, push back or defeat your enemy, you have to understand their, their, their essence, their origin and essence. And that essence is, you know, yeah, and unfortunately, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave, uh, leave it there. I'd, I'd love to have you back. Uh, you know, keep on going, dare to struggle, dare to win. You've been listening to Jan Lahman, uh, former political prisoner, political activist. Uh, I want to thank Rochelle, our producer engineer, I want to thank our callers. I want to thank you, our listeners. I've been the, your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be talking with you next week. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight.